exclusive podcast from Impact 89FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, Wikipedia plans to take its English language site offline tomorrow as part of protests against proposed anti-piracy laws, according to the BBC. The user-generated news site Reddit and the blog Boing Boing have also said that they will take part in the blackout. The site's webmasters are opposing uh, to the Stop Online Piracy Act and Protect Intellectual Property Act being debated by Congress. In national news, facing renewed pressure to release his tax return, Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney has estimated he probably pays about 15 percent in in taxes, according to the BBC. Most Americans pay an income tax rate of 35 percent, which is more than twice what Romney claims to pay. The former Massachusetts governor and private equity tycoon says his income came mainly from past investments. And in Michigan news, about a 1,000 protesters marched on Governor Rick Snyder's residential neighborhood in Ann Arbor last night. They marched to ask the governor to repeal the state's controversial emergency manager law, according to Michigan Public Radio Network. And in the studio right now is Reverend Sokuzen Bob Brown. He's a Buddhist priest who teaches meditation in Michigan prisons. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So why did you decide uh, to do this, uh, to teach meditation in prisons, and, and how, did it, how did it start? How did it begin? <clears throat> it started in Minnesota. I was invited by uh, some other uh, uh, people that were involved in the meditation center where I uh, was practicing in Minnesota, a, sh- a Shambhala center. And I was just uh, – someone just mentioned that he was going to be going into a federal prison to talk to inmates there about meditation and asked me if I'd like to go. And that was back in the 90s somewhere. So how did you find Buddhism, and how long have you been studying it? <clears throat> I've been studying it. I read the first book on Buddhism uh, in 1960. I was in the Marine Corps, and uh, someone had that a book called uh, – I can't remember the title. I think it was Zen Flesh, Zen Bones by Paul Reps. I read that and got me interested, kept reading books about it and other religions and so on until I met my first teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan Buddhist meditation master and scholar in 1973. So why teach meditation to prisoners? Well, the idea that uh, uh, meditation, the way it's taught in the Buddhist tradition going back 2,500 years, is not so much about uh, doing anything special with the mind uh, other than just observing. And by observing, we begin to see just how we create problems for ourselves. So the meditation technique is very helpful to people in that kind of a situation. And how do you teach meditation? Uh, it's very simple, actually. The initial instruction is sit down, uh, cross-legged uh, preferably, on a cushion. Hold the body very, very still without being rigid. All of the senses are open, including the eyes, and just observe what arises and do that a lot. And how long does it take for someone to get used to meditation to be able to meditate? It's a good question. I think it varies. Uh, some people are, uh, when they first begin uh, kind of uh, have the f- kind of fish and water kind of thing. They feel real natural. And then later on, they have trouble. And some people have a lot of trouble initially, and then things smooth out. And I think it's very, very individual. It's very hard to learn meditation from a book. It seems necessary to learn it from an individual who's done it for a long time. And how many prisoners do you work with? I've gone in and sometimes only talked to a couple in a prison, and uh, sometimes uh, I think the most I've ever had at one time was uh, a little over 50 at Deerfield in Ionia before they closed that prison. And how many different prisons do you work at? Right now, uh, there's two regular ones, and we try to uh, do a few more. It comes up out to about five. Uh, like this Saturday, we'll spend, my wife and I, Priscilla, will spend the entire day in two different prisons in Muskegon. Um, uh, E.C. Brooks, and uh, uh, West Shoreline. And what kind of responses do you get from prisoners that you're teaching to meditate? <clears throat> I think it varies. Uh, everyone who comes to meditation 
comes to it with a different kind of idea or preconception about what it's for or what it's about. And quite often inmates in prisons, uh, much different than drug rehab center where I also teach or at our temple, people who are already uh, have ideas about meditation practice, the people in the prison are just looking around for something. Uh, in our prisons, the Michigan Department of Corrections, they're actually allowed to change their religion every six months. And so they can actually move from one tradition to the next, uh, religious. And so uh, on occasion, you'll you'll have someone come in who has checked out just about every religious practice in the prison, and then they come to Buddhism. Sometimes they go on, but quite often they, when they realize what it is, they stop, and then they begin to practice meditation and study the teachings. And how would you compare or contrast uh, the difference between um, those that you work with that are in drug rehab versus those that are in prison? I think there's a similarity in that there's strong uh, mental addiction to something, to satisfying themselves through some particular channel. So there's a strong – in Buddhism, there's something called the three poisons, passion, aggression, and ignorance. And these are the ways, or the, the ways in which we, through our self-centeredness and our narcissism, we try to manipulate things to get our way. And sometimes people in drug situations or prison situations have done it to the extreme, so they fall outside the social structure we all accept. And how, you, have, how have you seen meditation impact the prisoners? Are you able to keep up with them and see their progress, or is it kind of you come into a prison and then you do your thing and then you may not yeah. see them again? That's a good question, Emily, and I think, uh, I think it varies so much. Uh, sometimes uh, an inmate uh, will be at a, one particular facility for years, so you'll get to know them quite well. And other ones, they move them around. Uh, the inmates call this riding out, and they you, you might see them one or two times, and they ride out to another prison, which could be even in the Upper Peninsula. There's about seven prisons up there, which we've also been to the Upper Peninsula. Well, again, for our listeners, I'm talking with um, Reverend Sokuzen um, Bob Brown. He's a Buddhist priest who teaches meditation in Michigan prisons. So I'm curious, um, how would you describe or explain Buddhism to someone that is unfamiliar or has not been exposed to it? Okay. <clears throat> As a religious tradition, it goes back 2,500 years, and it is uh, you could characterize it as a non-theistic religious practice or spiritual path in that it doesn't posit or claim a deity or God at the top. Even the Buddha was just a man and made no claims. So it's non-theistic. It doesn't make it better or worse, just makes it different. So I would say that and the main tool of Buddhism is meditation practice or the practice of developing awareness and insight through holding very still and observing what arises without meddling with it. So you, um, having been first exposed to Buddhism or really started practicing after you were in the military, how has meditation impacted your life or becoming Buddhist impacted your life? Well, I've slowed down considerably and I'm uh, not, I would say, I like to say it this way, I'm not particularly at war with myself anymore, which at one time I was, you could say that I was very much at war with myself and confused down deep emotionally and that's no longer the case. So I once um, had a conversation with um, a colleague of mine, and they were talking about how they're very interested in Buddhism and read a lot of books on it. And they once said that, I think they read a book by the Dalai Lama that said, you know, sometimes there's certain societies in which you almost can't be a Buddhist based on what your surroundings are. It's hard to be able to be in the practice when everything around you doesn't kind of correlate with the you know, the, the philosophies and, and the pace of, of things. Um, do you find it hard to be Buddhist in, in, I guess, in the society that you live in? Well, I think the cultural situation, which is what His Holiness was pointing out, uh, is very much plays into the whole thing. But on the other hand, if you are inspired after reading the teachings of the Buddha or other Buddhist teachers in, the, in various lineages, including His Holiness Dalai Lama, uh, then you would, uh, you know, you would you'd make make a way for that. You'd set up an hour a day to, so you could practice and possibly go into retreat a few times a year and in that way, yes. So what do you do with your time when you're not teaching uh, meditation in prisons? Watch Netflix. Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Okay. Yeah, cause enjoy, I, I enjoy inter- myself. Yeah, I understand you, you also do other retreats. I do um, lots of retreats all over Michigan. If you, uh, you know, um, 
there's I can't even remember them all, but there we do something every month somewhere. Either we do a, an all day sitting uh, once a month at our temple in Battle Creek, and so on. So yeah, there's a there's lots of activity along that line. So I'm curious, having been exposed to um, the prison system, especially here in Michigan, um, would there be anything that you would that you've observed with with our um, criminal justice system or the prisons here um, in the U.S. and I guess Michigan that that you would like to see changed, that they well, could function better? Yeah, that's that's uh, you know it's uh, uh, there's lots of things I would like to see changed. Uh, in particular, in our situation. As Buddhists who practice in prisons, uh, being able to have more access to – they're only allowed to, to practice one hour a week with me. So I would like to have extended retreat practice. Also allow them to have uh, meditation cushions in their cells, which they are not allowed to. They are only can do that uh, one hour. Uh, depending on the level, there's an hour and a half, I think, for the lower security levels. But something like that, and I would just like to have more access to them instead of once a week. I would like to go in and be able to spend a day with them and really uh, do longer retreats. You know, and sometimes I think it it's just you have to kind of pick your battles, so to speak. And uh, I'm so busy going in and doing other things that maybe if I uh, got into that a little further, I could convince uh, the wardens and, and chaplains and so on in there to do more in that line. So if our listeners are interested, where can they go for more information about either your temple or the retreats that you have or more about the work that you do in prisons? Probably a website would be the best place. Okay, and the website is? is www.sokukoji.org, S-O-K-U-K-O-J-I, Sokukoji. It means Temple of Immediate Light. So sokukoji.org. And is that temple, that's in Battle Creek? It's in Battle Creek, right Battle close Creek. to downtown. All right. Well, for our listeners, that I am talking with Reverend Sokuzan Bob Brown. He's a Buddhist priest who teaches meditation in Michigan prisons. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. John Waller is a professor in Lyman Briggs College. He studies the history of medicine, and he is here today to talk about his research on what is called the dancing plague or dancing mania. Welcome to the show, John Waller. Thank you. Good evening. So what is dancing mania? This is a, um, a very, very strange disorder that um, cropped up a few times from about the 1300s right into the 1500s. And it basically involved people dancing compulsively, dancing sometimes for days and days. They couldn't stop. They didn't want to dance. They were in a, a, a bizarre kind of trance state. And in some cases, particularly the one that I um, discuss in, in a book, um, they die. So... Um, it is really it's a state of compulsive, crazed dancing. And do, you, do does anyone know what causes it? Well, there have been a few explanations over the years. For the most part, people just refuse to believe that this could be true. But it is actually very clear on closer inspection that it happened, and it, it happened as people recorded it at the time. One theory is that they had ingested ergot, and this is a mould that, that grows on rye, and it, has some, it can have some really severe hallucinogenic effects. That doesn't seem to be the explanation here. What seems to have happened is that people, 
in the part of Europe where it happened, had a belief that there was a particular kind of saint, Saint Vitus, and you could be cursed by Saint Vitus to dance. And once these people became convinced they'd been cursed, then they started this mad dance, and it would go for one for days after days after days. So this happened in the 16th century, um, the the largest um, episode, I suppose. Um, how did people react yeah. to those that were taking part in this dancing mania? Well, they're pretty bemused, as you'd expect. The The one that I write about happened in 1518, and it starts off with one woman, and she starts dancing, and it goes on and on. And at first... People say at the time that, uh, she, in fact, they say she's doing it to irritate her husband. Um, then they think that she's been possessed by the devil, and then they decide that she's been cursed by St Vitus. But it takes a few days, and by that time, her feet are bloody. Um, she's probably worn her feet almost to the bone, and they finally load her onto a carriage and they take her away. And then within a few days, about 20 people doing it. Within a couple of weeks, 200, and then 400, and it just goes on and on and on. It gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> so do you think they're all dancing to the to the same beat, or is it just kind of their own dance, dancing in a square together? I mean, what did that look like, I wonder? Well, we don't know what the dance looked like, um, apart from really strange. Um, there's no sense that they were dancing with one another. They seemed to be completely in their own worlds. And they weren't happy, but they were in a trance. So they probably weren't experiencing anywhere near the pain they would have done had, they, had they'd been in a proper conscious state. Um, the, one of the weird things about it, though, is what the, the authorities did. They realised they had to do something about it. It was getting out of control and it was, it was embarrassing. So they actually set up a great big stage in the middle of the city and they hired musicians and dancers. And so within about a week of this beginning, you've got this incredibly unusual spectacle of all these people dancing madly and then hired dancers who were holding them, keeping them on their feet, making them dance more and more. And then the whole stage is surrounded by people playing the flute, people playing the drums, any instrument they could lay their hands on they were playing. Because they, they had this idea that these people needed to essentially dance it out of themselves. <laughs> and so the result of that was to make it an awful lot worse, because the more people saw them doing this dance, the more they began to suspect that they had been cursed as well. And then people started clambering onto the stage and joining them. And this is a point at which the numbers got higher and higher and higher. So it was kind of like the rave of the 1600s. Yes, yes, without, <laughs> without any kind of jollity, and it was, as far as we can tell, completely involuntary. But it's, um, in some ways it's quite, it would have looked quite close to a particularly wild rave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what fascinates you the most when you were doing research for this book, and what is the title of the book called? The book is A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. And, and what, was, what fascinated you the most when you were doing this research for this book? There are a few things. I mean, first of all, when I realised that this had happened and it was probably the strangest thing I'd ever heard of. I mean, we're not talking about large numbers of people dying, but the idea that even one person could die of dancing is pretty remarkable. And we're talking here probably of dozens. And that, yeah, they're dancing in a very, very hot summer in the middle of France. Um, so it's not surprising that some of them keeled over and, and, and died. Um, but it was a number of things that, that just how badly the authorities responded to it. And then there were also some really tantalising elements. When they finally intervene again and they get rid of this stage, um, they fire all the dancers and the, um, the musicians, they load these people onto wagons and they take them to a shrine in the mountains nearby dedicated to St Vitus. And there they make them wear red shoes. And I've got no idea why they made them wear red shoes. But, but that memory of compulsive wild dancing and wearing shoes, particularly red shoes, seems to have lingered on in the imagination of Europeans. And so it crops up again and again in fairy tales. Hmm, very interesting. So when I was doing research, um, I was reading a website and they said that the Pied Piper was an example of dancing mania. You've got a few cases um, in earlier centuries that people suggest the results of dancing mania. Um, it's really hard to tell because one thing that most um, bishops and popes disapproved of was dancing because it got people very excited and they, there was a serious danger of them doing really inappropriate things. <laughs> and so often they would be a, cobble together these stories which involved people dancing, um, too much excitement, and then they would meet a horrible end. 
So um, there are lots of these stories. Some of them may be examples of compulsive dancing. It's really, really hard to tell. But you can see why the Pied Piper, people suggest, is the dancing mania. The, the, the kids follow the Pied Piper dancing um, out of the city, and then, and then most of them die. We, we just don't know. So... What ended up happening to the dancers? How long did these did these dancing episodes go on for? And, and how do people kind of get out of this dancing trance, I guess? The, actually, the biggest one was in the late uh, 1300s. And it follows a whole series of massive disasters, floods and harvest failures and diseases and the rest of it. Um, in that case, it went on for about three or four months. And we're talking about thousands of people on and off dancing wildly. Absolutely uncontrollably. <laughs> um, this one in the early 1500s, maybe four, five hundred people were involved at one point or another, and it went all the way from July into September. It only stopped when they took these people to the shrine, and they seemed to have been just about conscious enough to work out that, well, that ought to appease the saint, and the curse has probably been lifted, I've done enough, and then they seemed to calm down, and then they went back, and there are no more reported cases of it. So does anything like this happen happen today? Well, not exactly today, but in Madagascar in the mid-1800s, there was an episode which was incredibly similar to this. Uh, people dancing and dancing into a trance and then running wildly and dancing around the countryside. More The, the closest we get to it now are episodes of mass hysteria, where you will get... Um, is actually really commonly in very strict boarding schools, uh, particularly in certain parts of Africa. There was a recent one in Mexico where, uh, in particular, young girls under loads of pressure at around about exam time will break down and then it's contagious. It spreads like wildfire among their classmates. But uh, uh, quite of, a famous of crying? one. Oh, well, there, there was a very famous one in the 1960s in Tanzania where at a girls' boarding school, one girl started to um, cry and laugh compulsively. And this carried on and on and on. And then several of her classmates started doing the same thing again. And then the school made a bit of a mistake. They sent all the kids home. So they took it all home to their villages. And in the villages, oh, no. more children than adults started laughing and crying by turns. And it gradually petered out. So these things do happen. People continue to break down in very, very strange ways. And do you think that this, that going back to the idea of dancing mania, do you think that that could ever happen again in this day and age? It's hard to believe. Actually, the, um, the, the BBC radio just aired a play which was based on the idea that it was happening today. And in fact, they tried to reproduce the effect of the famous uh, Orson Welles um, uh, um, uh, um, account of alien visitations. So um, it's presented as something which is happening now, an ongoing news item. And apparently a lot of people were quite scared. This, this was broadcast a couple of weeks ago. But it, it seems very unlikely. You've got to have pretty extreme beliefs in the supernatural. And everybody's got to share these beliefs. And the authorities have to do something really silly, uh, like making people dance in public. I suppose it's just about conceivable in some places, maybe um, other parts of the world. But um, I'm not banking on this happening anytime soon. So, so you're, again, um, I'm talking to, jo to John Waller. He's the author of A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. Um, and he's with uh, the Lyman Briggs College of Science in the Department of History here at Michigan State University. And you focus on the history of medicine, um, psychiatry, and the evolutionary mm -hmm. biology. So focusing on the history of medicine... Um, you know, can you talk about the advances of medicine and, and maybe how you may have diagnosed or treated these people that had these dancing mania episodes? Well, a lot's changed. When, um, when this dancing was clearly getting out of control, the first thing the authorities did was invite the doctors to give their opinion. And rather unwisely, they followed it. Um, what the doctors said, and this was very, very conventional for medicine at the time, they said basically these people had cooked brains that uh, the weather was very, very hot, um, and th this meant that they had too much blood, the blood went to their brains and it made them behave like lunatics. And it's not entirely clear why, but they were the ones who suggested that these people dance more. So, I mean, clearly this is not what would be prescribed today. Um, I mean, I I'm not entirely sure what would be prescribed today, probably in the first instance very heavy sed sedatives. 
Um, but you'd expect some kind of psychotherapy and pharmaceuticals to follow. Um, but, yeah, you, you can be rest assured that the response would be an awful lot more effective. So do you do you teach this in any of your classes on campus? I do in, in a few. I mean, it, it's a, it gives a nice example of the way doctors thought at that time and, of course, of how much things have advanced. But I think it's also um, a nice example of just how strange the human mind is capable of being. That uh, depending on what people at a t- any time and place believe, they can break down in the strangest fashions. I think what really interested me about this story is it really shows one of the the outer limits of what our mind is capable of making us doing. Yes, very, very true. Um, So again, in the studio, I have John Waller. He is a professor in Lyman Briggs. He studies the history of medicine. And he is here today to talk about his research regarding what is called Dancing Media. And that book is called A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. Uh, John Waller, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Impact Exposure. Thank you. Good night. You're listening to Impact Exposure. General, we've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tappingest music. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Not only do the dancing plague hit Europe, but Spartans are also kicking up their heels. Exposure reporter Emmanuel Berry brings you this story on the Spartan ballroom dance team. Two lines fill the space of Dem Hall with music playing on the edge of hearing. Nearly 30 girls wearing black buckled heels look over anxiously at the six boys across the room. Between them, a couple presses their palms together and they begin to lean into the rhythm of cha-cha-cha. This isn't a sad high school dance. This is practice for MSU's ballroom dance team. The MSU ballroom dance team teaches students the different styles of ballroom dancing. Three years ago, the club had around 10 members. Now, they have 75. One of those new members is biosystems engineering student Ryan Carter. Ryan joined the club because he likes how dance makes him feel. When I dance, I, I feel invigorated, I feel alive, and it's, it helps me calm down and just, just relax. The more I can dance, the more I can move, the more relaxed and, and the more fun I can have. The MSU Ballroom Club holds weekly dance lessons and practice sessions led by senior club members and professional dancers. Members learn smooth dances like the waltz, foxtrot, and tango, and rhythm dances such as swing, mambo, and cha-cha. Former ballroom club secretary and president Sherry Anderson said people are often surprised by their dancing ability. Even if they come in thinking, oh my god, my friend dragged me in here, there's no possible way I can do this, like, we're like, oh yeah, you can. Just watch, just watch. Give us a couple weeks. And then they're like, oh my god, I'm dancing, whoa. And we're like, mm-hmm. Club members take the moves they have learned across the Midwest, participating against other colleges in ballroom dance competitions. Anderson said the club was not always competitive, and only within the past three years has the club started going to competitions. We finally had people coming in wanting to dance with, like, Dancing with the Stars on TV and stuff. We slowly, painfully got this together. It was a lot of work, but it's like my baby all grown up, got people dancing and stuff. It's great. Dancing and winning. Ballroom competitions have winners for each type of dance at five different skill levels. The top six are awarded ribbons. MSU's team typically takes four places out of six in each level in dance. New member Ryan Carter said there is one other benefit to joining the ballroom team. There's, like tonight, there's, what, a six-to-one ratio of girls, and they're all good-looking, so it's a great way to meet new friends and once you start to dance and you start to become involved in it you realize that you're going to want somebody you can be able you can be able to dance with there's a lot of sensual dances out there for impact exposure i'm emmanuel berry
You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. There are three record stores in East Lansing alone, and it seems sales of vinyl are on the rise. A report by Nielsen, a media research firm, indicated that record sales, that record sales, uh, shot up 40% in 2011 compared to the previous year. Impact's Kyle Pakinski has this feature on why vinyl has not died when music is only a download away. Vinyl. Once, it reigned supreme over the music industry as one of the most viable and innovative mediums to ever be created. An individual from an older generation will sit you down and tell you stories of families gathering around a phonograph simply to listen to music recorded on a vinyl record. Like all other forms of media, however, it was fleeting. With the birth of the computer came compact discs on which to store and play music. Vinyl records held on as long as they could, but were inevitably no match for the increased portability and durability that compact discs provided. After compact discs came mini discs which was almost immediately followed by the digital MP3s and iPods that are popular now. Technology, being an ever-evolving industry, will continue to push forward and change the way life is experienced for as long as there are people who have ideas. With the quality of music and other forms of media constantly increasing, what reason might someone have to revert to older forms of media as a source for entertainment? One of the newest trends surfacing in the music world is the re-emergence of vinyl records. In the last few years, more and more music lovers have began collecting vinyl records, and more and more vinyl record stores open every year all across the nation. Even record player sales have been steadily increasing within the past decade. It seems like vinyl might be one of the only previous forms of media to actually make a comeback within the industry. It is at this point that we must take a step back and ask ourselves, why? What is causing this behavior? One would think that since newer forms of music and media are more convenient, of a higher quality, and are more permanent, that there should be no reason to turn back to past ways of living, yet it is happening before our eyes. Vinyl record collector Dan Neufer sheds some light onto the possible causes of this recent trend. There's just something about a vinyl record that CDs and MP3s can't give you. It's such a raw, regal sound. It gives you a much better sense of being there. I guess to me, it just feels more like an active listening experience. When you're listening to a physical copy of music, you're more involved in the experience, especially with vinyl. Mike Voldeck, the owner of East Grand Record Company, shares his opinion. Everybody needs something to collect. I think it's become way too easy to get online and, you know, download a song. I mean, where's the fun in that, you know? Um, you know, you'd like to, I think a lot of people like to have that, that physical, you know, record in their hand. And, um, you know, just the same thing when CDs came out. Um, you know, it was, it was easier. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you wanted to have the, you know, physically something in your hand. And I think, uh, you know, vinyl records, I don't think they've ever left, to be honest with you. I just think there, you know, wasn't much of a market because people were out playing their CDs. People like to embrace the easy things that come along, whatever's easier, you know. And it's much easier to sit in front of your computer and download a song than it is to actually go out to a, a store and buy a record or something like that. But I also think that it's because of that that records are making the the big comeback that they are because there's nothing like going to a store and bringing home an an album and, you know, hearing that, you know, the needle hit the vinyl. You know, it's it's a feeling unlike anything else. So I think that's why they're they're making a big comeback because things are just too easy now with, uh, with downloading. Another aspect of this new trend that must be considered is how well a new business, especially one in such a specialized industry, 
can blast its way through the barriers of entry and actually establish a steady business stream, let alone make a profit. In the city of East Lansing, Michigan, home to Michigan State University, it all began with one record store. Soon after, another surfaced. This second store began to suffer due to the loyalty of students and residents to the first store. It has been hanging on with one hand since. This past fall, another store opened in the same two-mile strip that houses the other two. The owner, Mike Voldeck, talks about his store's entry to this highly specialized industry in a town with little need for it. circular has been there 33 years so I mean we wanted to find our own niche and I think we found it with having the biggest selection of used records in East Lansing we, we just want to work together with with the other record stores um, the East Lansing community doesn't have that great of a music scene unfortunately outside of you know the College of Music and whatnot so um, I was excited that these other stores were here because they could help us out to give us sort of a, a business plan, a business model of how things work and the uh, type of demographic that we have coming in the shops and stuff like that. So it was great that there was already a, a couple more shops here. Vinyl record retail may be one of the only industries where stores can work together to drive up each other's sales and act as a single entity in order to inspire and evoke creativity within the community. Even the music industry as a whole is embracing this trend and using it to bolster physical and digital sales, attempting to regain a foothold in a once dwindling industry. What bands are doing is releasing all their albums on vinyl and including a download card for free. You know, now they have a way to make a little more money and at the same time still offer the the easiness of downloading and stuff like that. So I think it's uh, I think it's a great thing for bands. I think it's a great thing for the music industry in general. It seems apparent now that vinyl records are not making a comeback. They, in fact never left. America, being a country that's obsessed with fads and the newest, coolest thing, got caught up in the compact disc and digital mp3 crazes, but always knew that vinyl was there. I think records are always going to be around. They've been around for years and years and years, and even when CDs came and even when MP3s came, there was always still records. As far as the, the popularity now, if it does go down a little bit, so be it. But I think that records have always been here, and there always will be here, and there will always be somebody that wants the nostalgia. It has become clear that vinyl record sales, and even the whole of the music industry itself, is a community-wide effort that thrives on the cooperation and compassion of a myriad of people to grow and prosper. What this means is that it's up to us, the user, the listener, the active ingredient, to keep the music industry alive. It is up to us to keep musicians creating, recording, and performing so that musical culture can remain ever-changing. If the arts are the soul of humanity, then we are the key components in keeping our soul young, fresh, and vigilant. For this is the only way for us to grow as people and as a nation. It is this mindset that will set us free. The evolution of ideas is forever enlightening, but we will always have a solid base to fall back on. You're listening to Exposure. Coming up next, here's another story with uh, MSU alum Megan Gebhardt. You are tuned to Impact 89 FM. In the studio, I have Megan Gebhardt. She is a recent MSU alum who dedicated a year to drinking coffee with strangers. She calls this project 52 Cups of Coffee. Welcome to the show, Megan. It's great to be here. So what inspired you to do this project? And tell me a little bit about this project. 
So 52 Cups of Coffee was my year-long experiment in caffeine and conversation. So I decided that I would spend my senior year um, having coffee with strangers. Each week for a year, I'd have coffee with someone I didn't know and then write about their story and what I learned in the process. And the project really originated my sophomore year of college when I got an unexpected email from a student who got my name from an advisor. And in the email, he said, I hear you're working on some entrepreneurial things. I'm an entrepreneur. Let's get coffee and see if we can help each other. And I went into the meeting not really expecting anything out of it. And the result of this meeting was I met this person who would become one of my best friends. And three years later, or I guess two and a half years later, I was reflecting on that cup of coffee and my curiosity got the best of me. And I thought, meeting one new person could have such an impact on my life. What would a year of meeting new people do? Uh, So I figured there was only one way to find out. And I launched the project last July. Last July. And you have now recently completed this 52 cups of coffee. Yes, um, actually. So it took a little bit longer than a year, but I did. I had coffee with 52 different people. What types of people did you have coffee with and how did you find them? A huge spectrum of people. I talked to everyone from this six-year-old adoptive, adopted Native American girl in my hometown and this recovering alcoholic to President Simon and Coach Tom Izzo and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. So I, I hit the spectrum. Wow. And I found the people, there were kind of three ways that I found them. It started out just kind of reaching out to people that I knew of or people that I found on Twitter or people that um, were doing cool things in the community and I just had never really met them face to face. And then it progressed to asking people for recommendations. And that ended up being the best way to find people. I was traveling to Seattle to visit my brother for Thanksgiving and I asked a friend, who's really well-connected out there, said, do you know someone really interesting who would be willing to talk to me? And then towards the end of the project, I had a handful of people reach out to me and say, you know, I hear what you're, what you're, or I've heard about what you're doing. I think it's really great. Would you have coffee? So those were kind of the three methods. So what kind of reactions would you get from people when you would ask strangers, come have coffee with me? It was incredible. There was, I did not receive a single no. Um, the only that's uh, that's not entirely true. The only people that wouldn't have coffee with me were the people that didn't have room in their schedules. So I said, I'm going to be in New York this weekend. And they said, I'm sorry, I'm going to be out of town. But it's amazing how willing people are to sit down and help out somebody else, especially someone in college. I think a lot of times people that are old, older or further down in their career realize that they wish they could have gotten some advice when they were little or someone gave them really great advice when they were leaving college, so they're really willing to sit down and share that advice with others. And what were some of your favorite cups of coffee? I feel like that's an unfair question because there were so many incredible moments and experiences from the project. Seth Godin is a best-selling author in New York who is a big idol of mine, and so I had the opportunity to sit down with him. So that one was an incredibly... um, That one meant a lot to me, but there were some other really great ones. All of them were great for one reason or another, but I think a really memorable one is Cup 40, a woman named Janine who actually lives in Poland. And so this is really representative of how the project really changed my life. So last September, I had coffee with an MSU grad student who was Polish. He has cerebral palsy and he's, he's in a wheelchair, um, and, he, and if he's not in his wheelchair, he gets around with a scooter. So you would look at this kid and think, oh, the poor guy confined to a wheelchair because he has cerebral palsy, and you just would kind of feel bad for him. And then you talk to him for two minutes, and you realize he is one of the most vibrant people and one of the most um, joyful and has one of the most satisfying life of anyone you'd ever met, ever, I had ever met in my life. And so he was from Poland, and he was going back to Poland for um, the summer, and Early on in the project, all these people told me to travel while I was young, and so I decided at Christmas that I wasn't going to look for a job. I was going to go to Europe for two months. So I happened to be in Poland the same time he was in Poland, so he calls me up and he says, you have to come visit. I don't care what it takes. You have to come to my hometown. So I get to his hometown, and his grandmother doesn't speak a word of English, and but she has these incredible stories because when she was 18, World War II breaks out, and So she's out there watching all the men in her life get shipped off to war or concentration camps or prisoner of war camps. And here she is, you know, trying to defend her little town from these invaders. And so 
Peter is telling me this. And I said, I have to talk to your grandma. She has to be a part of this project. I have to have coffee with her. And she doesn't speak English, but Peter speaks Polish. So we had this really incredible cup of coffee where Peter translated the entire conversation. And it was memorable for a lot of reasons because her story was so incredible. But also, it really illustrates that you never know where a new connection will take you. When I sat down to have coffee with Peter, I didn't expect we'd become friends. I certainly didn't expect I'd be hanging out with him in Poland six months later, and I didn't expect that I would be sharing this really magical moment with his grandmother. So those uh, those were some of the moments where you just kind of sit back and you go, wow, life is really crazy and beautiful if you are willing to take a risk and try something or reach out to someone. So for those that may just be tuning in, I'm talking with Megan Gebhardt. She's a recent MSU alum who dedicated a year to drinking coffee with strangers. And she's she's um, written about every experience along the way. And you can follow that at 52cups.tumblr.com. So I noticed when I was reading your blog, um, you have listed every single person and every single cup of coffee that you had. And then under everyone's name, you would write kind of a lesson that you learned from them. And, and when, I, when reading through your, your final blog post, you were mentioning how much of an impact this made on your life. So what, what kind of overall themes or lessons did you learn throughout this entire project? I think the, the one that really stands out and the one that I most needed to learn as a senior in college, really nervous about what the future would bring, is that life does not go according to plan. Of all the people I talk to, besides Coach Izzo, none of them are are doing today what they thought they would be doing the day they left college. And when I started the project, I was so concerned with figuring out that perfect plan and getting that perfect job. And I just thought if I don't do everything right and I don't find that perfect job or perfect plan, I've just kind of screwed up the rest of my life. That's probably unhealthy thinking when you're a senior in college. But that really was my mentality. And I talked to all these people, and I realized that there is no such thing as a perfect plan. And more importantly, you get to decide for yourself what you want out of life. And and it's really up to you to figure out the plan that works best. And so I, I realized that the future is uncertain. Um, things happen that are outside of your control, good things or bad things. I mean, tragedies happen, illnesses, unexpected breakups or whatever it might be. But then also really great things happen where you're going along with your life and then all of a sudden this person comes into your life that you didn't expect or an opportunity or you realize a passion. And so if you can't predict the future and life is filled with uncertainty, I think I really came to realize that you just have to embrace that uncertainty and realize that the future is really great if you're willing to work hard and take chances and get back up when you fall down. And that wasn't a mentality I had when I, I started the project. Um, I was so overwhelmed with anxiety to graduate. And then after I graduated, I realized life is going to be really cool as long as I'm willing to do the work to make it really cool. And, and how has your plan changed then? Now that, li- that you say life is uncertain <laughs> and your plan always changes, how has your plan changed since you've done this project? So um, I have uh, – I, I, when I started the project, I figured that by December of – the December following graduation, I would have a job in an office in a city. And where, what did you graduate with? What marketing. Was your degree? Mar- marketing. Marketing degree. So okay. uh, for the first six months after I graduated, I was intentionally homeless and unemployed. So I, I decided to travel. And in, since graduating, I've stayed in 75 different locations, which means I average being in a new place every three days. And it started with me just wanting a break from college and time to explore to figure out what I wanted. And then it turned into an actual job with Michigan State's Alumni Association. So I actually started in November doing contract work for the Alumni Association uh, as a young alumni, doing young alumni engagement. So they're sending me to different cities to connect with young alumni to figure out how we can better serve them. These alumni that leave school, how do we help them? How do we create programs that are beneficial? So I did not expect that I would be traveling and nomadic and working for the university, but but it's really great because I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. Um, just kind of exploring, and I'm much more relaxed about where the future will go because I think that this opportunity will lead to the next one, which will lead to the next one. And 
it's exciting. I'm really excited about life. Not that I wasn't when I was a year and a half ago, but now I'm more excited about life. And where where have you traveled? Oh man, I think I've I have been in 13 different countries and probably 20 different states since I graduated. So those two months I spent in Europe and then since I've been back, I'm originally from Wyoming. So the state of Wyoming, I went to Nashville and New York and California and Chicago and Boston and South Dakota, um, Idaho. So all over the place. And why did you choose 52 cups of coffee? Why that number? Um, it... For a, well, the original reason was that there are 52 weeks in a year, which the fact that I didn't finish the project in a year kind of ruins that. But I really like the numbers 5 and 2 and 7, and 5 plus 2 equals 7. So those are quirky, irrational reasons to pick 52, but it just felt like a good number. Sounds like an answer from a marketing major. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how long would your would your conversations last on average? They would vary. I, I would say... 45 minutes to three hours. Um, sometimes you you just find someone and you, um, some of the people we just get on a roll and then all of a sudden time would fly by. But I think the shortest was probably 45 minutes. Um, but it really varied from person to person. So you, you wrote in your blog that you believe that um, where you are in five years depends on the books that you read and the people that you meet. Tell me a little bit more about that statement and why you believe that. So that's a quote that I heard a long time ago, and it really resonated with me. And I, th- I, I, I love, well, I, I guess this year is a great example of what happens when you meet new people. And I think everyone's kind of not stuck in their box, but they're in their comfort zone. And I think when you meet new people, whether by choice or by chance, it changes you a little bit. And so the more people you meet, the more you kind of change. And I really believe that it's important to surround yourself with good people. And I think that was what really motivated this project was if I could meet 52 really cool people, that would probably be 52 positive changes to me. Um, And then books, I've always been a, a... a reader. And I don't think it's books necessarily, but just like learning, that curiosity to read books or read blogs or read things that um, are interesting. So it's about learning and meeting new people. And if, you, if you're always doing that, you're always kind of changing. I see. Well, well, in the studio is Megan Gebhardt. She is a recent MSU alum who devoted a year to drinking coffee with strangers. The project was called 52 Cups of Coffee, and you can follow that journey at 52cups.tumblr.com. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. You're listening to Impact Exposure. And uh, this week's Michigan Storytelling segment features professor and award-winning writer Jim Daniels. He'll be reading at the MSU Library this Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Welcome to the show, Jim Daniels. Hi. Thanks a lot. So uh, you teach at, at Carnegie Mellon. What is your connection with Michigan? I was born in Detroit and uh, grew up in uh, Warren, right outside Detroit. And I went to Alma College as an undergraduate. And I still have a lot of family in the Detroit area, so in many ways, Michigan is still home. In fact, tomorrow, on my way to Michigan State uh, for the reading on Thursday, I'll be staying at my parents' house in Sterling Heights, Michigan, tomorrow. Wonderful. So for tonight, you'll be, doing, um, uh, you'll be reading a story called Scenic Outlooks. Can you tell us a little bit about this story before you, you do your reading? Sure. Uh, Scenic Outlooks deals with, as, as a couple of the other stories in this book, a trigger man deal with the, the notion, particularly in the Detroit area, but in a lot of Michigan, parts of Michigan, particularly southeastern Michigan, this whole notion of going up north, that uh, the, the goal, particularly among the auto worker families that I grew up with, was you know to, to, to have a place up north, to go up north to a cottage on some little lake, and that would be the idea of success uh, in life. And so the story deals with a family who didn't really get a chance to go on very many vacations, so there's a lot of pressure on them to have a good time on this one little uh, family trip up north to a cottage on a, 
uh, kind of rundown cottage on a, in a small resort that anyone in Michigan is probably familiar with. So without further ado, would you be willing to read your, um, an excerpt from your story, Scenic Outlooks? Yes. So I'll get it started. Uh, scenic Outlooks. I remember only one vacation during all my years on planet Detroit, though my parents had photographic evidence of me as a baby at Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes, looking marooned, disconsolate, in the middle of all that sand. It could have been the surface of the moon, a photo doctored like my father claimed they did at NASA. My father had great faith in the power of the day. They were always putting the screws to us, raising taxes, gas prices, insurance. In my father's dictionary, they had the longest entry, and that entry was blank, for he defined it at his whim. They were out to get us was his motto, and I would have had it carved on his tombstone if they hadn't already ripped us off for everything else connected to his funeral. Yeah, I'm a chimp off the old block, as he used to say. I like chimps, so I didn't mind. Chimps always seem to be imagining they're having a good time, something we weren't very good at. Thus, the one family vacation that I remember was a complete disaster. Michigan's full of lakes, not just the great ones. We've got a lot of little inland puddles circled with shacks called cottages and owned and managed by obese men in ball hats with one physical deformity that paid off big for them in a court of law. Or so it seemed once we arrived at Carl's Cabins on Tea Lake. My father swore that a guy from work came here every year and loved it. My father's antidote to what the they of the world were doing to him was to take the sage advice of one of his fellow line workers at the Chrysler plant who was in the same sorry state. Even after he retired, he continued to go to the plant barber, who my father believes should be running the country. Why he changed the C on cabin, but not the C on Carl, my brother asked. The K was, the cabins was spelled with a K. It's all about marketing, my father said, as if he knew something. Just by getting you to ask that question, he's already got you interested in the place. My brother Randy was always getting our father riled up with questions from the back seat or dinner table. He often was sent to his room to eat, which was also my room. Randy was a sloppy eater, so our bedroom smelled of moldy spaghetti half the time. The other half smelled like our teenage funk. I'm not sure what was worse. Randy was 15, and I was 13. It's our last chance to go on vacation with the boys, our mother had pleaded until our father gave in. It was really already too late for me and Randy to enjoy a good, wholesome family vacation. We didn't know how. The guy from work had a boat, it turned out, and was primarily interested in fishing. He had no family. He went up with a group of old friends from high school, and they drank beer with Carl and went fishing. They laughed at each other's farts and had a fine time. Randy and I still laughed at each other's farts, but we could have done that at home, where Randy was in hot pursuit of Gina Martini from over on Dallas Street. As Randy explained it, Gina could be undiscriminating in her displays of affection, and so he was worried that a week away might get him erased from the slate of her attention. Our father had taken a scenic route to Carl's, driving up along the Lake Huron coast, he insisted on pulling into every scenic lookout along the lake shore and making us get out and look. Then he'd take various photos of us looking surly into the camera with whatever scenic vista as a backdrop. The plan was for us to spend a night in a motel, something we'd never done before, and our, father, our parents hadn't done since their honeymoon in Atlantic City, a long weekend while my father was home on leave from the Army. They'd ruined his life by sending him to Vietnam, where his feet nearly rotted off and he saw people die. The draft was messed up, but if they bring it back, you boys are going, he told us. Yeah, to Canada, Randy said, then took his spaghetti into our room. It turned out it was the weekend of the Port Huron to Mackinac boat race, and all the motels along the lake had their no-vacancy signs lit up in the growing dark. We ended up sleeping in the car in a rest stop until an enormous state trooper knocked on our window with his enormous flashlight and told us to move on. They had to plan their dumb race on the same day. Our father didn't even finish. Randy glowered in the back seat. We're having some fun now, he said, and looked at me. Oh, yeah, I said, some fun. So that's how the story begins. 
And uh, on the phone is Jim Daniels. He is an award-winning um, uh, writer as well. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon as well, and he will be um, presenting at um, at the Michigan Writer Series at MSU Library this Thursday at 7 p.m. And he just read um, an excerpt from the story Scenic Outlooks. Jim Daniels, thank you so much, so much for joining us tonight on Impact Exposure for the Michigan Storytelling segment. I appreciate you having me on. And that's all for tonight. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.